Welcome to the New Politics Podcast, where we provide analysis and opinion on Australian politics and fill in all the gaps left behind by the mainstream media. In this episode, we look at how the government is performing during the coronavirus crisis and the ghost of a former Prime Minister makes an appearance on the central stage. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, inventor of the internal combustion engine. We're still in a lockdown all across Australia and it seems that the effects of the coronavirus will be with us for some time to come. The government seems to be managing the crisis, but on closer inspection, there's a massive gap between their rhetoric and their action. There have been many announcements about the $300 billion in stimulus and support spending for the next six months, but aside from the $750 payment to pensioners, not one cent has left Treasury. The JobKeeper and JobSeeker programs seem to be covered with red tape, and the money needed to stimulate and support the economy is currently only a small trickle. Scott Morrison did say that he was going to leave ideologies at the door, but last week he suggested that this is the time to introduce industrial relations reform and company tax cuts as part of a COVID-19 recovery program. This does sound like the talk of an ideologue. It's the free market neoliberal talk from Morrison's wish list, and it's the drum that many in big business have been beating for some time. It's classic right-wing economic philosophy, and it's an economic thinking that won't work in a new world economy. In our last episode, we mentioned that we do need to keep a close eye on what governments get up to in a time of crisis, and quite often, it's not exactly what it seems. What? they have ignored or don't understand is that the economic system as we've been running it is extremely weak within two weeks it was in problem for companies that were supposedly making all this money and all this security and all this a three-month stall shouldn't be that big a problem and it's a massive problem it's a massive problem the system is dead now of course they're going to bring it back the idea that they're using this as an excuse to bring in harsher employment laws isn't surprising. It's extremely disappointing. It shows what we've been saying all along, that the government is out of its depth, it's out of time, it's had it. Now, of course, you do want the Prime Minister to be in control of any sort of crisis, but my feeling is that Morrison is still behaving quite politically. Again, he's doing the double speak. he's trying to be the man of action, trying to raise expectations about when all of this is going to be over and he's pushing that idea that it's going to be over soon. My understanding of it is that the lockdown needs to be continuing for some time to come. So sure, the number of cases has been reduced. That's fantastic news, but there are more deaths that are actually occurring as well. So I don't think there's a reason to be complacent about this. The Minister for Human Services, Stuart Robert, he's the one that's responsible for introducing a tracing app. And the government has been pushing this this idea that once they get the tracing app out there, things are going to be fine. We'll be able to open up the economy, open up the society. Now, just having a tracing app, that's not a panacea for anything. The government is spruiking all of its benefits. Now, perhaps if there was a different minister responsible, I may have more confidence, but Robert had as much technical success describing how the tracing app would work as George Brandis did when he was describing metadata a few years ago. So he's not really inspiring very much confidence at all. The Liberal Party doesn't like technology, but looking more broadly, the NBN in general, the census, something that Australia did very efficiently for around 116 years, 
and we have a census that can't be used because they didn't know how to do it properly. You know, these are the people who have suggested maybe electronic voting might be a solution. No, thank you. This tracking aid, they've made mealy mouth guarantees that they won't use it again. Now, if you know a little bit about how mobile phones work, they've got a permanent GPS in them. You can be tracked. You just need an outside party just needs access to the phone. Now, it is probable that the government will stop using it at the end of the pandemic. But what's to stop other governments in the future using them for much more sinister reasons? Well, it depends on so many different factors. Well, first of all, you do have to download the app. Initially, there was discussion about making the download of the app mandatory. It possibly will be. We're not sure. Maybe not. Maybe yes. But that would depend on so many different factors. You'd need at least 40 or 50% of the population downloading this app. Then they need to be actively engaged in this. If you do contract coronavirus, well, it's up to you to actually change the settings in the app or let the app know that you've got coronavirus. Now, there's all sorts of social issues as well here where you can imagine it's, it's almost like announcing to the world that you're a leper. Yeah. Nobody wants the disease, understandably. Those that do have the disease have a stigma with some people. It's bad enough that it's highly contagious. We don't know, and this is one of the other things of easing the restrictions, we're still not sure if uh, you're immune to it once you've had it. With a lot of diseases you are, but not with everyone. You know, and we have to be careful and we have to be we have to be vigilant and we have to use social distancing. The app is a bad idea and badly planned and badly managed which could be the policy mission statement for this government, badly planned and badly managed. But is it a case where there are objections to the app itself, this format of or the relationship between a government and an app of this nature, or is it the nature of the people that are trying to implement this? Trust in governments all across the world is at an all-time low, and during a crisis where you'd want it to be up as high as possible. But do you think it's just a case where this particular government is not trustworthy about implementing this type of app? I think there's no trust. The politically disengaged audience in Australia have never trusted government. Those that have been politically engaged. I don't mean party members and lobbyists and you know journalists. I mean people who take an interest in what's going on. Trust in government is at the lowest it has ever been, and rightly so. I mean, I'd love to say, look, no, people have got it wrong. It's, this is a government that's doing its best and its best is actually being effective. No indication shows that that's true. We've got a government that all of its senior ministers got there, not through significant achievement, but because they could win petty political battles. Since Tony Abbott, really, that's been their uh, political strategy, win the small battles, because that's how you get noticed, that's how you get your numbers. And there's also those suspicions about the ulterior motivations by this government, especially when it comes to the handling of private digital data. And and this government does have form on these matters. You mentioned the census breakdown a few years ago. There was also the breakdown of the Centrelink website recently. There was also the creation of the My Health data system where the minister, Greg Hunt, wanted to automatically put every citizen on the system 
without supporting legislation that could protect privacy and personal data. Now, for all we know, the government could have sold off that data to a third party and we wouldn't have been able to do anything about that. So there's those critical issues. But it also, it does get back to the double speak and the double standards that leads to confusion in the community. For, for example, the Deputy Chief Medical Officer, he was asked why it's okay for FIFO workers to be crammed into plane flights interstate when the rest of the community is told to keep a distance of 1.5 metres from each other. His response was, well, these are short plane flights, which they're not. And, and he also said that there's little to no chance of catching the virus in these circumstances. And, and this is totally against the current medical advice and current practice. So you can see that with this double messaging, why the public is a little bit confused about information that they're receiving from government and why they're so cynical about their motivations. There's an American school of thought, that libertarian school of thought that says we put idiots, I think the word they use is schmucks, into government so that we can take all the best people and put them into private enterprise. And I'm wondering if this has been the strategy for government. Planes are disease magnets. Whenever you go overseas and you come back, or whenever you go on a flight and you come back, more often than not, you're sick for a couple of days afterwards. Cruise ships are disease magnets. Anywhere where people cluster in relatively small areas, schools, large office blocks, public transport, these are all clusters of where diseases happen. The flying FIFO workers in and out, and the two industries I can't understand that are still going is uh, the mining industry, because again, you've got a lot of people working in small groups, and the racing industry. You know, it's funny that they're both highly profitable, tax dodging, money laundering, at least for racing, at least it was. And I'm not talking about individual trainers and jockeys here, or even all owners. But the races have always been a place where organised crime could gather. I was flabbergasted when I saw that the Deputy Chief Medical Officer would say that it's okay to fly in a plane for a short time. And you do have to wonder why those statements are even being made in the first place. That There will always be a relationship between vested interests, those that contribute directly to this government, contribute directly to the Liberal Party, They'll be seeking to influence government action and government policy and make sure that whatever government-imposed activity that's implemented for the rest of the, the community doesn't apply to them. That's the nature of vested interests and it's the business of stakeholder management. Now, you alluded to this before, the conservative side of politics, mainly in unison through the national newspapers, have called for an end to the lockdown even acknowledging that this is a major health risk and that many people could die from it. But it's almost like they're saying, well, we told you so. The numbers are down to a level where almost nothing has happened. The economy has been destroyed for the sake of saving an older generation that we're going to die anyway. Let's get back to business as soon as possible. But is that type of economy an economy that's worth saving? It's clearly not. An economy is only a tool to help society function. It's one of many tools. Uh, we need an economy. We need a social contract. What are our duties and responsibilities and rights as citizens? A lot of this stuff gets pushed to the background when it comes to protecting profits for big players. 
keeping billionaires billionaires, keeping the wealthy wealthy. For people who brag about their resilience and their proaction and their their strength of character, second anything goes wrong, they go crying to the government. It's a system that has failed. We've seen it fail twice this year in the bushfires and now in the pandemic. It's a system that can't be sustained. Unfortunately, we have a government that has built its whole ideology on economy first. Well, you're absolutely right. The economy isn't the be-all and end-all. It's a very important part of our society. At the end of this process, national government debt is estimated to be around $1 trillion. Now, it's around $550 billion at the moment, so we're looking at $1,000 billion. Debt is an issue that will have to be resolved at some point, but I'm pretty sure that lowering company tax and making industrial relations reform probably isn't the best way to address this idea. This stuff has never improved an economy. Economies work best when there's money shared around, now in exchange for labour goods or services. That's a fair enough rule. But when there's plenty of labour goods or services around and you have an expanded middle class, you have less poverty, you have less drag on the health system, you have less drag on law system and court system, you have less drag on the welfare system, that should work. But they don't want that. They want low wages, high unemployment to keep wages low, low taxes so that they make more profit. And it makes no logical sense. The most economically successful time we ever had was that period from about 1947, 1946-47 through to 1972. Prices were high, but wages were higher. Unemployment was full. Bob Hawke, I think, argued that if unemployment went to 3%, there would be a general strike. This is when he was chairman of the ACTU. There would be a general strike like Australia had never seen. He, of course, was a prime minister who saw unemployment raised to uh, 10 and 12 and 13%. That's a discussion for another time. So a few people have asked the question, what will this new economy look like? Well, essentially, it will look like the existing economy. People will still go to work, perform their duties as required. Some people might be working from home as they are now. The internet will probably become a larger player within the economy, although with the current state of the NBN, Australia might be at a disadvantage internationally. Perhaps people won't be working as much. There'll be more leisure time, a better work-life balance. Now, these are not radical ideas. Uh, These are concepts that were discussed both in Australia and America in the early 1970s, and the assumption was that this was going to be the future of work. But if these changes do occur, the the changes probably won't happen overnight. There will be a slower transition, but. I'd say that it's probably going to be working towards the value of work outside of just the dollar figure, the the meaning of work and how it contributes to the overall society, not just having the standard GDP per capita figures, which are, which is a fairly blunt instrument, but they're taking into account a wider range of issues that, about how well the economy is performing, environmental issues, social issues, relationships. In 2008, the Kingdom of Bhutan introduced the Gross Happiness Index, and that was the first country in the world to do that. That was ridiculed by the developed world, and the assumption was that they were simply doing this just to mask their own poorly performing economy according to standard economic measures. But there has been a groundswell of support over the past two decades to take in many factors into account when deciding how good or how well an economy is performing. 
But if Bhutan was considered to be at one end of the scale as far as world economies are concerned, one of the more sophisticated economies in the world, New Zealand, introduced a wellbeing index in their budget last year, taking into account issues such as life satisfaction, human rights, housing standards, education, relationships, and it's not really such a large step to take. There's already a world human rights index, there are world education standards, It's not such a large leap to consolidate all of these indicators into an economic budget. Although Josh Frydenberg did ridicule Labor's proposition to include a wellbeing index, but it is an issue that needs to be considered right now and ready to roll out whenever the coronavirus comes to an end. We should point out that Jacinda Ardern has been praised in international journals such as the Atlantic Monthly as being the best leader on the pandemic from around the world, which is high praise and which, as far as I can see, she's deserved. The fact that I think that their government takes a more holistic view helps. And the New Zealand economy is doing much, much, much better than the Australian economy. And I think we can see why. And part of a transition to a new economy has to be the assessment of critical infrastructure and the management of essential services. There has been talk recently about rescuing Virgin Airways in Australia. Airways across Australia, well, that's an industry that will go through substantial change, both in economic terms, but also in relation to environmental issues. The the airlines are actually the largest contributing factor to greenhouse gases around the world. So that's one factor that does need to be strongly taken into account. Air travel is an integral part of the Australian economy, but Virgin Airways is a foreign-owned company. Should the Australian government bail out the company without securing a part of the ownership? (laughs) When I saw a figure the other day when ANSET collapsed, I think there were 10,000 employees for ANSET who lost their jobs. There were a further 53,000 people who lost their jobs because of the uh, roll-on benefits of ANSET towns that benefited from the tourism, fuel suppliers, uniform makers, things like that. The best solution, as far as I can see, is that you nationalise the airlines. Warren Buffett, the world's most successful investor, doesn't invest in airlines because they don't make money. The most successful airlines are um, government-owned. United Arab Emirates, Singapore Airlines... British Airlines struggles on, Qantas struggles on. We saw how weak Qantas was two weeks into it when they were asking for $815 million with a CEO who gets paid $23 million. I'd have thought if he was worth that six-month shutdown or a 12-month shutdown would be something the airline could handle. I think the only way is to have the government own Virgin, regulate prices properly to make sure that they're not too expensive regulate the environmental issues with planes. And there are a lot of environmental issues with planes. I'm not uh, denying that. But flying is important to the economy. I think we have, again, we have the wrong government. They will not go for that solution. They'll take Chinese money. They'll take whatever money they can get. Do we want Virgin going to a consortium of Australian billionaires who aren't up to the job? Do we want it going overseas? where we have less control over prices, over routes, over scheduling, over job hiring. I can see that it's probably going to end up as another Cayman Island tax haven where the assets will be stripped and it'll, it will go anyway. You kill it now, 
would you kill it in two years? And that's going to be the issue. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud and Spotify, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, the bigger picture of the battle between Malcolm Turnbull and Rupert Murdoch. Malcolm Turnbull has released his memoirs, The Bigger Picture, and it's filled with many accusations against those who brought down his prime ministership. We documented that period extensively during the August 2018 leadership spill, but the most interesting part of the debate now has been his claim that News Corporation is in a symbiotic relationship with the Liberal Party, vetting candidates to run elections, deciding who they run positive campaigns for, those whose careers they can destroy, and also suggested that it was News Corp that tore down Malcolm Turnbull because he wasn't prepared to be owned by Rupert Murdoch. Now, during his time in office, Turnbull amended media ownership rules that allowed Rupert Murdoch to have an even larger concentration of the media. He installed an inferior national broadband network to protect News Corporation assets and even gave a $30 million gift to Foxtel, no questions asked. That, to me, doesn't seem like the actions of a Prime Minister who wasn't owned by Rupert Murdoch. No, Turnbull acted like a CEO where Murdoch was the board member. He carried out basically everything Murdoch wanted. The NBN, I've said it before, was an act of treachery, economic treachery. We should be on a world-class system. Instead, we're, what, 51st in the world or 55th in the world? I think you're being quite generous there. It's actually number 66 at the moment. It's dropped, yeah. I stopped looking at the figures because it depressed me so much. And for a, a country of Australia's standard, that's just nowhere near good enough. We should be at least top 10 and probably top 5. New Zealand is, and again, New Zealand has had much lower levels of stress because people were able to work at home. They could all log on from home and there was no drop to the system. And this nonsense of, oh, it's too expensive and Australia was too big. We put in the copper lines, which were far more expensive back in the 1940s. So I don't need to hear any of that rubbish. The returns are much, much greater. And a And as people said, when they put in the copper lines, they were for voice transmission only. By the time they reached the end of their usefulness, they were being used for internet, for faxes, for voice lines, for data transmission, for a lot more. I can't imagine what carbon fibre might be used for in the next 50 years. Now, we've known about the relationship between the Liberal Party and News Corporation for some time. Scott Morrison actually entered Parliament with the help of the Daily Telegraph smear against his Liberal pre-selection candidate in, in 2007. They've got a whole bevy of marsheads as well that actively campaign against the Labor Party, the Australian, Courier Mail, Daily Telegraph, Herald Sun. Now, Rupert Murdoch and the News Corporation, that's a, that's a cancer on the political landscape of Australia. The, that relationship between the Liberal Party and the Institute of Public Affairs, the, essentially these are p- the political wings of News Corporation. And it tends to behave like a criminal enterprise that uses media to incite hatred, division, 
And especially during this coronavirus crisis, they've been pushing out medically negligent information that may kill people. And 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 true to form, News Corporation has also been promoting the removal of the lockdown. And they're attacking people such as Dr Norman Swan, who's been a strong proponent of the lockdown. They've been using their newspapers to attack him personally. So it's a... Rupert Murdoch is a reprehensible man. The business model is reprehensible of, of News Corporation. It's all based on the worst of human instincts. Now, what, it will never happen under a Liberal National Party government because they're the main beneficiaries of News Corporation acting in the way that it does. But there should be an inquiry into Rupert Murdoch and News Corporation, similar to the British Leveson inquiry from 2011. David Cameron showed his full colours when Rupert Murdoch spent two weeks going in the back door of 10 Downing Street rather than through the front. The punishment Murdoch received for that was probably wasn't two weeks, it was probably closer to six or eight weeks of having to not be seen in public. That was nowhere near enough. His assets should have been stripped. They should be stripped here. They should be broken up. No one person should own more than 10% of the Australian media. We need independent media. We need big papers. I mean, you know, the large media firms have the resources to be able to chase big stories. For all the talk of uh, Pell being witch-hunted by the ABC, it was the Herald Sun, a Murdoch paper, that broke all the major stories on Pell. So credit where it's due. However... News Corp does far more damage than good. It's not an information. It is a propaganda wing for the Liberal government. There is no way Scott Morrison should have won the last election, given the number of gaffes, the number of scandals, the number of... There's no way Tony Abbott should have won his election. But when you've got a soft press... And Tony Abbott won by a lot, by the way. Scott Morrison didn't, and Malcolm Turnbull didn't. When you've got a soft press, you can get away with a lot. Today, Malcolm Turnbull is an ordinary citizen, but he's said that he's going to be an activist citizen and that he's a committed Republican and wants to continue to promote climate change issues. But action is all about acting when you've got the power and ability to introduce those ideas that you're committed to. And and Turnbull did nothing on Australia becoming a Republican. He did very little on climate change. Now, if you can't implement those ideas when you're Prime Minister, there's not much chance of implementing those ideas when you're not the Prime Minister. Yeah, Turnbull had the same issues that Gillard and Rudd did, a feral party made up of mediocrities with egos far bigger than their capabilities. That doesn't help, and that's hard to manage. I will give him that. Having said that, Ben Chifley had the same thing. Gough Whitlam had the same thing. Keating and Hawke didn't. Howard did, but he was he was able to manage them a lot better. He, but in the 80s, of course, he couldn't. There's plenty to criticise Malcolm Turnbull about. So when we do that, we better make sure that we look at all the circumstances. Well, the key factor for any Prime Minister is that if you can't control your party, well, you're not going to control government and you're probably not going to be around for a long, long time. But the the feature of Australia in the post-war period um, up until 2007 was longevity of Prime Ministers. So Prime Ministers, once they were in office, they used to hang around for a very, very, very long time. And 
So we had that with, well, Ben Chifley initially. Then we had that with Robert Menzies. Robert Menzies was in office for 17 years. Now, with Harold Holt, there were other issues that happened there. But there was a little bit of instability where there were changes of prime ministers on a regular basis between 1966 and around 1972. But since that time, up until 2007, once you became Prime Minister, you were there for for some time. Bob Hawke, Paul Keating, John Howard. But then, of course, things changed after 2007. Kevin Rudd didn't control his Labor Party. He didn't control the party, so the party controlled him. The same with Tony Abbott, although he had competence issues more than anything else. Malcolm Turnbull couldn't control the Liberal Party. Does Scott Morrison have that sort of control over the over the Liberal Party? We're, we're yet to see. He's only been in office for about two years. Now, one of those people that Malcolm Turnbull couldn't control was George Christensen. Now, George Christensen, he's the member for Dawson. He's been in there for, for some time. That's in the Townsville area of North Queensland. This beggars belief, but George Christensen, he was overseas for 294 days over a three-year period, and he spent most of that time in Manila. That's 28 trips over a four-year period. Now, this is reprehensible behaviour as far as I'm concerned. It drew the attention of the Australian Federal Police. They informed Turnbull about the nefarious activities that Christensen was up to in Manila, seedy bars, strip clubs, small payments to women, whatever that means. Malcolm Turnbull, at that time, he was Prime Minister, he just warned Christensen about this issue and he's pretty much a cease and desist order to George Christensen, but Christensen did nothing about that. He actually threatened Malcolm Turnbull. He said that he was going to use parliamentary privilege to tell lies about Malcolm Turnbull. So after that, Malcolm Turnbull did nothing. But again, it gets back to this whole thing about if, if you're the Prime Minister... That's when you act. You don't act after after your prime minister. You don't act when you haven't got the power to do anything about that. If George Christensen had spent four weeks holiday a year, twelve weeks in Manila, you'd think, okay, it's a place to go. The Philipp- people visit the Philippines for many reasons. He's under his entitlement as a his workplace entitlements. That's fine, and maybe it's a long time to spend in in one place even if he'd spent, you know, his annual leave in the city. Now, I know that his fiance lives there, but as I understand it, and of course I'm happy to be shown to be wrong in this, he didn't meet his fiance till later. And as I also understand it, he could afford to fly her to Townsville and never did. There's all kinds of prurient suggestions of why a young single man would go to Manila 294 days is a lot of time. And I know that they were saying, oh, he could work from his iPad. Not really. He can do maybe half of his work from the iPad, but part of the job of a local member. And this becomes difficult when you're a minister. And, of course, Christensen isn't a minister. Is that you have to be in your local electorate, visiting schools, opening buildings, meeting with uh, local people about their local concerns not just online, but face-to-face so you can go and inspect the issues that were going on. That Townsville electorate is a big seat and a lot of it doesn't have great internet. So a Zoom or a Skype call from Manila would be pretty much impossible. So I can't see his logic in spending so much time over there. Well, George Christensen, is, he's a very vexatious litigant as well. So he, he actually threatened to sue us for defamation and issue an apology over an article that we published online. 
and you know, which of course we didn't retract or publish an apology. Everything that we claimed about Christensen was actually correct. Now, before we get the pedants contacting us and saying, well, yes, someone can be defamed if the published information is even correct. Yeah, we understand that. But Christensen bullies people to submission, you know, even to the point of threatening to tell lies about a prime minister under parliamentary privilege. So, you know, this is a very unusual MP that we're dealing with. And, you know, during that time that Christensen was overseas uh, for that 294 days over a three-year period, now, it's not like he had an incredibly safe seat. It was He was only holding it by two or three percentage points. So it's a, it, it's a marg- it was a marginal point seat at that point so you'd think an MP should be trying to do their best locally to try and shore up that vote now as it turned out it seems like the the National Party didn't really care too much about Christensen's uh, misdemeanors or his actions you know or Barnaby Joyce's misdemeanors for that matter but seems like the electorate actually put that all aside and then in the 2019 federal election they rewarded Christensen with an 11% swing so it's no longer a marginal seat he holds that seat by 64% now so Something is obviously going on in that electorate where they're concerned about other issues. They probably couldn't care if George Christensen went overseas for 400 days over a three-year period. They'd still vote him back in. Apparently a lot of the campaign was based on, look at what these southern newspapers are talking about our local boy. How dare these Sydney and Melbourne people defame our local boy like this? And, of course, the vast majority of people never get to meet their local member, not for any nefarious reason. There's a lot of people in an electorate and not everybody needs that level of direct representation. And of course, there's a sense in which the only people that Queenslanders hate more than Victorians are New South Wales. I know that's not universally true and I'd just like to say hello to all our lovely listeners in Queensland. But I understand that's how he campaigned. Also, he had the Adani mine with all the jobs, and a lot of the the vote wasn't for the local member per se, but it was for this promise of jobs. When those jobs don't eventuate, I wonder what the political future of a lot of these uh, ministers from that area of Queensland is going to be. So it seems that we will be hearing about Malcolm Turnbull into the future, and that's a that's a good thing. He says that he wants to be an activist citizen. Good on him. He's only six, he's sixty five years old, so he's got a lot of um, lot to go as far as public life is concerned. But it gets back to that same old issue that, that we keep coming up with that it's all great to be an activist citizen, but you do all of the, all of these things that you want to do when you when you are the prime minister, not when you stop being the prime minister. And and to me, it seems like it was just a waste of a big opportunity for Malcolm Turnbull. The country could have been so much different if he had stronger leadership, but it didn't turn out that way. The exemplar of um, what to do after public life is Jimmy Carter, who at 94 is still going out and building houses for the needy. Uh, Having been president, and we can argue whether his presidency was good, bad or indifferent, but he went out and really put back into the community in quantifiable and real and significant ways. In Australia, Julia Gillard uh, has done a lot of good work since she stopped being in politics. Malcolm Fraser did some work for the United Nations. Stanley Melbourne Bruce did work for the League of Nations and uh, Menzies pretty much retired, but he was an older man. Howard retired, he was an older man. Kevin Rudd has done bits and pieces 
but a lot of a lot of prime ministers have gone into private enterprise and not done much. So if if Malcolm Turnbull wishes to be an activist, that's great. However, you, you're exactly right. It's all very well to say he's going to do this, but he actually had the chance to do significant stuff as prime minister. And really, all he achieved was um, the same-sex marriage plebiscite, which all indications were he was actually in favour of that, but the party was dragged kicking and screaming and it was made to be a postal vote, non-compulsory, non-binding. That's not the result of a passionate prime minister with a cause that's close to his heart. That's the actions of a weak leader who has been destabilised from within. All he had to do was say, sure, defy me. I'm just going to ring Bill Shorten and get him to bring the tape measure in to measure up the redecoration of the lodge because if we bring this in, we will lose the next election. And that's all he had to do. Now, they didn't lose, but they didn't win by much. Well, I guess that's how Malcolm Turnbull's time as Prime Ministership can be summed up. As it, yeah, it was just a catalogue of missed opportunities. He, as soon as he became Prime Minister, he should have gone to an election pretty much immediately mm. in October 2015. He was riding high in the polls, but then after that, for a six-month period, he just meandered, meandered into a nothing sort of Prime Minister. Now, we can argue that he was hampered by the, the right wing of the Liberal Party, but it gets back to what we said before. If you're not controlling your party, you're not going to be Prime Minister for too long, and that's what happened to Malcolm Turnbull. He was Prime Minister for, for almost three years, but he could have been Prime Minister for, for much longer. He could have implemented a lot of other, other things that were close to his heart, but ultimately he didn't, and that's the public record shows that. Another privileged person who was handed the opportunities to him. Now, he worked when he got those opportunities, but nobody else got them. And he squandered them. You know, the Rhodes Scholarship, the brief but successful legal career, the business career, the banking career. He made a lot of money by selling out of Aussie mail just at the right time on advice and the rest of it. You know, as a QC, was able to get a high-profile international case. Some of it was luck. Some of it was talent, but a lot of people with just as much talent didn't get those opportunities. And when it got up to it, he got nothing done, which I guess is one of the great tragedies of Australian political life. And we compare him to John Howard, who came from a little bit further down the economic chain. They had land in uh, New Guinea, which they'd been granted after World War I, the, the Howard family. But they weren't fabulously wealthy and Howard through talent and hard work worked his way up to prime minister and survived being knifed out of the job of leader of the opposition in the extremely brutal 1980s. None of his rivals did survive that. Now, in other news, the Ruby Princess, it's almost disappeared off the media landscape. Now, that was the cruise ship that docked into Sydney Harbour, not once but twice. Had 900 infected coronavirus uh, people so far. There's been 18 deaths so far from the Ruby Princess. Of course, the New South Wales Police Force, they've announced an investigation into it. They announced that about two weeks ago. Now, they've gone through this whole process of deciding to interview all 2,700 passengers. 
they've decided, well, we're going to try and find out the source of the virus. And, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if they come up with the the finding that they'll blame the salmon moose for the source of the virus. Now, it just doesn't seem like this is the thing that they need to investigate. They need to investigate why the boat was allowed into Sydney Harbour. And it seems like just because they started off an investigation, politicians are now saying, oh, we can't comment on the Ruby Princess because it's under a police investigation. Now, this was, we reported on the Ruby Princess a few weeks ago, and now it's been one of our biggest articles for the year, and many responses that we've received have been that people are sick and tired of the cover-ups and the obfuscation. Many people have died through the Ruby Princess incident, and the public just wants to know the truth. Channel 9 had an interview last night with either the president or the CEO. They called her both. One of those was, a, I, I guess, a little typo or a, or a misspeak from the, from the host. Not a lot came out of it. She was very regretful of all the deaths and that uh, spent a lot of time saying how it was a worldwide phenomenon and how basically it wasn't our fault. I think there is blame to go there. There's still a thousand crew on the ship and 190 of them are sick. That's a much larger proportion than on land. That's nearly 20%. Whereas I think infection rates, even in places like America, are much lower than that. What's been very quiet is that the New South Wales police have gone to interview all 7,000 passengers. I'm not quite sure that's where I'd start. I'm not a professional investigator, so I'm not going to say the police are doing the wrong thing here. But I would say that you might get a bit more from interviewing border force officers, interviewing ministers in charge, interviewing New South Wales Health. Some of these people are to blame, some of them are not to blame. And of course, an investigation, you speak to everybody. I know that New South Wales Health got a lot of blame, but New South Wales isn't in charge of its sea borders. So that takes it back to the Australian federal authorities, in this case, Border Force. Well, most of those passengers that are being interviewed, like it's it's simply going to be a form that they fill out, just asking them mm. questions about what they knew about on the on the ship. And so that will that process will actually go through quite quickly. Now, New South Wales Police, they did say that they were going to investigate far and wide. The New South Wales government has supported uh, an inquiry into into this as well. Now, I don't think it's a case where things can just blow off the media cycle. Now, of course, the media cycle works in a way where even if it's a massive story, it's a big story, people lose interest in it after a while, and the media loses interest in it after a while. But I think it's just one of those cases where the Ruby Princess just has to be has to reappear in the media on a cyclical basis so that people just don't forget about it. The pressure does need to be kept up. I feel like it's going to be a little bit of a whitewash where there won't be any blowback to Peter Dutton, the minister responsible for home affairs, or the New South Wales government. I'm thinking of a place like South Australia where I believe the first cases of COVID-19 from South Australia were from a couple who got off the ship and went to South Australia, went to the Barossa Valley. South Australia shares a border with uh, New South Wales, Victoria and Western Australia. So you could argue that disease was going to come in anyway, but would it have? And if so, would it have spread like it did? Could it have been contained if it had gone, say, from a plane in Adelaide coming from Sydney? There's a lot of anomalies People's passports weren't checked. People weren't tested as they got off the boat. 
I, I don't know that they'll be able to cover this one up. Well, let's see how this one pans out. If you're interviewing so many passengers, even if it is through a checklist form or interviewing so many people behind the scenes, that will take a while to find out exactly what's been going on. Let's hope that it's not a cover-up and the truth does come out. It's essential for overall trust in governments and trust in the authorities that the truth does come out. That's it for this new politics podcast. Don't forget to give our program a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or any other location where you can find us. Thanks for listening in, and you can continue the conversation at our website, newpolitics.com.au. I'm Eddie Djokovic, and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.